Hi, Undark listeners, it's your host, Kasha Patel. You may remember a few episodes ago, I helped out with a research project where I drove around Washington, D.C. in my car with a temperature sensor. The data collected told researchers that shaded parts of D.C. were 17 degrees cooler than areas of open parking lots and concrete. This project could inform city planning, which is cool because I helped gather this information. And more and more of these projects are popping up. These are projects that use the help of people who aren't necessarily scientists in the traditional academic sense. Now, citizen science projects aren't new. They've actually been around for at least 100 years. In fact, you probably did one in school, or your kids are doing one now. When I was little, we'd measure snowfall in our backyard with a ruler, but we were kids and still learning how to read rulers, so I wouldn't bet my life that my measurements were 100% correct. And that's probably why citizen science projects sometimes have a reputation of being more about education or outreach than hard data. Now, don't get me wrong, they do help with outreach. Studies have shown that citizen science can engage the public and support learning in STEM fields. But it's also becoming a legitimate way to do some actual science. Yes, technological advances are making it easier for people to participate, but it's also scientists, federal agencies, and the public showing a renewed interest in this field. Earlier this year, uh, our team published a new paper with citizen scientists and other scientists in our field in which we revealed that there's a new feature in the night sky that we call Steve. And we didn't know that Steve was out there. That's Liz McDonald, a space weather scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. She leads a citizen science project called Aurorasaurus that collects reports of auroras all over the world. I worked with her a few years back, and even though I'm not officially involved in the project anymore, I immediately thought of her project as a great example of what happens when scientists team up with citizen scientists. You learn something completely new. This feature, which looks like a kind of purple ribbon going east-west across the sky, was seen by the citizen scientists and amateur uh, aurora photographers who are really amazing aurora photographers. This has been seen by them for a number of years. Basically, when some aurora photographers in Canada showed some of their pictures to Liz and her colleagues, no one had any idea what this horizontal purple streak in the sky was. And just to provide some kind of label for the mystery, one of the citizen scientists named it Steve, a reference from a popular children's movie he liked. Liz and her colleagues asked Aurora enthusiasts and citizen scientists to keep an eye out for Steve so the team could learn more. Then one day, luck struck. Some of our satellite observations also cross this east-west feature, and it's this really strong flow um, in the upper atmosphere called the subauroral ion drift. But what we never knew and what is the new discovery is that it has this uh, visual component that people can um, actually document and tell us more about because it's mostly this little purple ribbon, but there's sometimes green features along with it that are really wild, crazy plasma physics that we don't understand yet. So. Um, we're looking for video and working with the public to learn more about it. And how cool is that? Liz and her colleagues learned that this feature they already knew about for a long time, this sub-auroral ion drift, actually has a visual feature that might be born out of some wild space physics. 
and now that they know more about the lights, the researchers gave it a more accurate name, Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement, which can be shortened to, you guessed it, Steve. Many people have different ideas in their mind when they hear the word citizen science, including scientists who often don't get like what that is um, for them or their field. But when you can really show results um, to the science that we never would have found otherwise, uh, people get really excited about it. And people are getting so excited about this field. In the past five years, the field is gaining support from some large players, like the U.S. government. The government created the Crowdsourcing and Citizen Science Act of 2016, which is focused on promoting citizen science activities across all these different federal agencies, which they post at citizenscience.gov or on Twitter at FedSitSci. The field is also getting more dedicated resources. They have their own peer-reviewed open access journal called Citizen Science Theory and Practice, Three years ago, the Citizen Science Association hosted its first conference with more than 600 people from 25 countries. And that's just one of several dedicated associations to pop up in the last few years. Well, I'm on the board of directors of the Citizen Science Association, um, which is one of, of several associations. There's a European association, there's an Australian one, there's other ones forming in different parts of the world. Um, just showing that this is a global movement. That's Karen Cooper, who's an associate professor at North Carolina State University, and she's been involved with citizen science for around two decades. In addition to her work on the board, she's written a book called Citizen Science, How Ordinary People Are Changing the Face of Discovery. She's also the director of research partnerships with SciStarter, which is a directory of citizen science projects where anyone can browse projects and learn how to participate. SciStarter is the largest like inventory of citizen science projects in the world. And there's thousands of projects on SciStarter, and there's still so many more <laughs> out there. There's such a boom right now in citizen science, in so many different disciplines, advancing so many different areas in engineering, in health, public health, epidemiology. Gosh, I mean, I could name like a zillion disciplines, things that we think of as science, and then other areas that we don't even think of as like needing discoveries, but like with urban planning and governance and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, too. Cooper says the number of projects added to SciStarter has been steadily increasing. Every month, they add one to two dozen new projects to their inventory. So why do you think there's this sudden boom of citizen science projects recently? I think that that there's a lot of things that have come together. I mean, so part of it is technology to crowdsource a lot of people in a concerted effort. It's not like it can't exist without the technology because before we had smartphones and internet, people did amazing large scale projects, but it definitely helps make it happen. And having just a lot of people who are super civically engaged and wanting to be part of things like research projects and then I guess from the scientist side of things, I think there's just more and more recognition from scientists that realizing that there are scientific frontiers that, that they can only start to investigate and really push on with engagement from the public and with sort of these citizen science methods of being like, wow, people know things, people observe things, people are all over the place, <laughs> you know, where I can't be as a scientist. And and, and they can collaborate on research projects. Yeah, and it just leads to so many types of discoveries. 
If you asked me seven years ago, I would have thought of citizen science as an outreach project. I would have thought that the quality of data was not good enough for scientists to use. Is that true or a myth? It's a common misperception that citizen science data are no good. Well, for one, people do have a lot of expertise, people who are great at identifying birds, people who know their butterflies, who can know how to monitor stream water or weather. Like, I mean, people a lot of times as hobbies become, you know, great experts at things. And then also there's just so many ways to handle data quality. I mean, there's, there's well over a dozen different ways. It just depends on what the project is. Some projects have like consensus tools built into them where there might be some online classifying of images. And it's not just like one person classifies the image, but there'll be 10 or 20 people until it reaches some kind of consensus. Photographs, like the fact that so many people have smartphones or, you know, different types of um, mobile devices that can take a picture means that there can be photo documentation that, and it can be geo-referenced for like for some for a lot of types of observations. There's a lot of different low-cost sensors that people use in citizen science. And actually, I used a low-cost temperature sensor when I drove around DC collecting data. In fact, practically everything Cooper is saying applies to why I decided to participate in that project. It was easy enough, I was interested in the subject, and I believed in what the researchers were doing. It was a way for me, a science enthusiast, as you will, to feel like I was contributing to meaningful research by just volunteering a few hours of my time. This is probably the closest I can get to being involved in real published research without spending seven years to get my PhD. And I like that. Doctors are known to have nerves of steel. They treat gunshot victims and cancer patients with a cool head and a steady hand. But before they're doctors, they're just medical students, nervous and inexperienced. And then comes anatomy class. For many young doctors, anatomy class is their first intimate encounter with death and where they learn to balance empathy and professionalism. Reporter Caitlin Swaljay brings us the story. I remember thinking that no matter how much I prepared for that moment, I still was not going to know how I would react until I actually saw the cadaver. That's second-year medical student Jenna Wozer. It's a wet and foggy night at the University of New England, and she's telling me about her very first patient, a man she only knows by age and cause of death. You walk in and it's very clean tables everywhere, silver tables that are a bit taller than waist high, and they're just covered in black bags, and you know what's in them, but you can't see anything. And do you remember the moment of unzipping the bag? Yeah, the zipper didn't work very well, <laughs> so, uh, you know, prolonged the anticipation, but um, my donor was 84, and his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head which, um, you know, leaves a lot to the imagination. Um, I remember not, not being able to look at his face yet, even though that was part of our assignment. You know, humanizing somebody <laughs> before you um, go to learn their anatomy is a difficult thing because you're supposed to sort of separate that. 
there is no culture in the whole world that does not have some sort of taboo surrounding the violation of the human body after death. And what we're doing in anatomy is, on the face of it, first of all, a violation because of that taboo, because we are uh, uh, basically destroying the intactness of the whole human body. Dr. Sabina Hildebrand has worked as an anatomical educator for the last 20 years. She holds positions at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. And she works with medical students in their first year of study as they enter the anatomy lab. It is not normal to cut into a human being, even a dead one. So um, this is basically a negotiation between the society and the scientist um, to be allowed to break this taboo. The transformation from student into doctor doesn't just happen after memorizing the names of body parts or learning how to set a fracture. There's also this big emotional element they need to practice. See, doctors are given the impossible task of viewing their patients both as fellow humans, as mothers and brothers and friends, but then also as bodies that need fixing, sometimes using invasive methods. This takes some objectivity and distance. And the very first time this balance is practiced is often in the anatomy lab. Ultimately, what they learn also is um, this very important balance between, on the one hand, uh, empathy from human being to human being, but also a certain uh, detachment. In the last few decades, human anatomical education has shifted to what's called a humanistic model. It's a deliberate move. The cadaver is no longer just some specimen to dissect but instead a student's first patient. The gruesome history of body snatching has been replaced with ethical body procurement from consenting donors, and institutions now work to cultivate an atmosphere of respect for donors and all harvested tissues. Many programs also build time for reflection into the lab schedule, often in the form of a memorial service held for students to thank family members of donors. The choice that your loved ones have made to be a donor, to teach the next generation even <clears throat> after their own death, was one of courage and forethought and extreme generosity that is appreciated beyond measure. This new humanistic approach to educating young doctors has one real aim, to teach the students how to build professional relationships with their future patients, when to connect, and when to find distance. If you're completely empathetic with the, the body donor, you don't dare to cut into the body donor. At the same time, they cannot be too detached because then they become inhumane. We want them to understand that this is a difficult balance and remains a balancing act throughout their life. The anatomy lab is then an ideal training ground for learning this balancing act, because nothing is really at stake. No one lives or dies because of decisions the students make. As a result, they have the freedom to focus on their learnings and the chance to be self-reflective. Here's medical student Jenna Wozer again. 
I remember the first time um, I saw my donor, I was struck by the fact that that person had lived a whole life and now they were before me and I knew nothing about them except their age and their cause of death. This conflict is a sign that Jenna is on the path to becoming the kind of doctor her university hopes to nurture, able to carry out her duties, but willing to reflect on the humanity of her donor. Frederick Way is about to enter hospice care. He's also signed up as a body donor. If a medical student one day reads his file, it will state that he died of esophageal cancer. Well, when I first got the diagnosis uh, in the hospital, I kept asking, well, how bad is it? As soon as the eyes drop, you know people are keeping something from you. Fred was given four months to live nearly two years ago. While he's defied the odds, there are physical signs of his sickness. He's lost over 50 pounds, and some days there's a lot of pain in his stomach. But he's certain in his decision to donate his body. I hope that, that in whatever capacity they use my body for, that it benefits somebody somewhere. Suppose um, your body were used to teach medical students. Mm-hmm. Would you want to say something to them? Uh, well, yeah, get it right the first time, because this is the only one I got to give you. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got two bodies to give you, so you better do it right the first time, you know. While the students who learn from Fred's body won't know who he was in life, they'll learn from the life he lived, from his scars and his tumors, and they'll become better doctors for having met him. seems like there are so many medical solutions for diseases or ailments nowadays. Some of them are easy, some are scary, and some a little odd. And sometimes, taboos make it hard for patients to get a treatment they really need. Susan Dagnostino wrote an article for Undark about her experience with a DIY fecal transplant. To learn more about her experience, Seth Manukin talked to Susan. Seth is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Take it away, Seth. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Susan D'Agostino, who wrote a really incredible piece for Undark earlier this month called When an FDA Ruling Curbed Fecal Transplants, I Performed My Own. Susan, welcome to the Undark podcast. Thank you so much, Seth. I'm delighted to be here. So in the piece, you you describe how this all came about and how you first uh, got really sick and and then what happened from there. Can you sort of take us through that process and what that was like? Well, this was about five years ago in 2013. And I had taken a a course of antibiotics for um, a different condition. And um, soon after, I got very, very sick. And um, I ended up in the hospital and was diagnosed with an antibiotic superbug known as Clostridium difficile. And the standard treatment at the time was another antibiotic known as vancomycin. So I followed doctor's orders and I I took that and I wasn't getting better. And when I finished that course of antibiotics and, um, uh, you know, it still wasn't better, my doctor prescribed the exact same drug again. 
And um, I was very, very sick. <laughs> and I began to lose confidence that, um, you know, that I would get better. So uh, what is C. diff? And, and can you tell us uh, how this came about, how you first got infected, and then uh, what the symptoms of a C. diff infection are? Sure. The main symptom of C. diff um, is debilitating diarrhea. Um, the, the CDC a few years ago noted that about 14,000 Americans die annually from Clostridium difficile or C. diff. So there, as I understand it, and I just want to state from the beginning that I'm not a doctor, but as I understand it, <laughs> um, there are two different ways, at least, to contract Clostridium difficile, or known as, which is also known as C. diff. About 5% of the adult population is, are carriers of C. diff. And, you know, we all have good and bad bacteria, and some of those bad bacteria may be C. diff. So if the balance in your colon is upset, the balance of good and bad bacteria, then the C. diff gains a foothold and is allowed to rise up and can take over. Um, another way to contract C. diff is to pick it up from um, some external source. And, um, you know, it's a very, very hard uh, bacterium to eradicate. It uh you know, you can't, you know, the alcohol sanitizers don't work against it. Bleach does not work against it. Um, the spores can live on cold, hard surfaces for months. Um, so it does tend to be uh, present in hospitals um, at a pretty alarming rate, at least my opinion. <laughs> um, or if you come into contact, um, and, you know, you go into a bathroom where maybe somebody is either a carrier or you know, currently suffering from C. diff, and um, you can pick it up that way as well. So in the piece, you describe how this all started when you were prescribed an antibiotic for uh, a different infection, um, and that uh, that was actually the first time you had taken antibiotics in several decades, and that your suspicion is, it sounds like that you were one of those 5% of the population that is a carrier. Um, and when you took the antibiotic, it lowered your resistance. And, and that was how you went from being a carrier to, to having an active infection. Um, you, you go on to describe in, in incredible detail uh, what that was like and how, first of all, you wanted to protect your family um, and make sure that they didn't get infected, but uh, also just how you were really for a period of time living in the bathroom. Um, you described going to the bathroom sometimes 30 times a day and how you ended up just sleeping to the extent that you could get sleep, really sleeping on, on the bathroom floor. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was, about what that was like? It's funny, the, you know, one uh, yardstick that we often use about, you know, for pain um, in society is, is childbirth. And um, there's no question that C. diff was much more painful than childbirth. You know, this was, there was no sleep. Um, there was, uh, you know, no reason to leave the bathroom. And I also, as a mother, was concerned about infecting my household when I understood that I could expose my family to it. And I should say that, um, you know, it would rise and fall. I would go on the vancomycin and maybe I would, 
start getting a little bit better. But then the minute I went off, you know, when I finished the course, you know, it surged back. And, um, you know, so this was over a period of months um, where, you know, the outcome was unclear, but there were moments where I thought, okay, maybe this will work. But then there came a point where I understood it never would if I stuck with the course that my doctor had um, set for me. You describe how after a number of rounds of treatment, um, at, at one point when it was clear that you weren't getting better, and in fact, it, it seemed that in some cases the infection was actually getting worse uh, and your body was not able to clear it, that uh, you had a conversation with the doctor and, and the doctor essentially told you that it was time to get your affairs in, in order. That sounds like just an incredibly chilling conversation to to have it, it must have been absolutely terrifying yeah it was it was chilling that's a good word to describe it um it reminded me at the time of um my mother had, had before this long before this my mother had died of cancer and shortly before she died she um had gone to the hospital with internal bleeding and um a couple of days after she was admitted to the hospital, they discharged her. And I was there with her and I um, I was very confused. And I said, this is crazy. They're discharging you, yet you still have internal bleeding. And my mother turned to me and said, they're sending me home to die. And my mother's words came back to me in that moment. And, um, you know, when my gastroenterologist was talking to me. Um, when I realized that I, I could not count on my doctors and, um, you know, lo and behold, my mother did die shortly after that. Um, and, you know, she was in the end, given her condition, she was glad to go home and be at home. But my reaction as, um, you know, a 40 something mom who had meaningful work and <laughs> a lot of life left in me, um, <laughs> was, um, I'm not ready to die, and um, I'll take care of this myself. So what did you do then at that point? You're you're not ready to die, very understandably. Uh, and at the same time, you know, you essentially have every healthcare provider that you've come in contact with you telling you that there's nothing else they can do, that they've done everything they can, um, and uh, essentially you're going to have to ride this out and, and kind of hope for the best. Um, I had already at that point learned about, um, I had, there was a Scientific American article um, by Marin McKenna where I had read about fecal transplants. That let me know about this option, which then sent me actually reading peer-reviewed articles in the New England Journal of Medicine um, to understand what the latest research and cures were. My doctors at the time were not ready to talk about it. And it turned out that my experience was not unusual, that many doctors at the time were turned off by the, un, you know, the, the, you know, unappealing aesthetics of the procedure. And, um, you know, they were, they, they just shut down conversation before it even began. I found that kind of incredible. It, you know, you're, you're going to 
gastroenterologists, doctors who deal with the body on a daily basis, um, and really asking about a procedure that had, there was literature supporting it. And at this point, it sounds like it was, it was really a last-ditch effort. What was the reaction of your doctors when you started to ask them about this? Um, I would describe their reactions as um, an attempt to immediately shut down conversation. They used words like yuck and gross um, and told me I didn't want that and that I should continue taking the antibiotics. Um, there was, and again, this is, you know, as a patient who was in a very bad spot, <laughs> you know, not feeling well, you know, sick, uh, you know, discouraged. Um, there, were, I perceived, um, a little bit of, you know, that's gross. Why are you even thinking of some doing something that gross? Um, so I didn't, um, the, the conversation ended before it began on multiple occasions before I abandoned, um, you know, the, the medical community, because at the time it was actually, um, there you know, the FDA had um, relegated fecal transplants to clinical trials, and not every doctor was able to offer it, but there were some who could have offered it, and my doctors might have directed me to those doctors if they had been open to discussing it. Why do you think they reacted in that, in that way? I believe, if I want to think as kindly as possible about these doctors. I believe that they were constrained by some cultural taboo about feces. And I think that that's something that we need to address on a cultural level. I don't think that any one doctor was out to get me. And, but I do think that we need to be more open to solutions that may sound unconventional um, and this, I should point out here that um, this is not new knowledge. I discuss in my article about how it was done as early as fourth century in China, um, and that there's actually a long, long history about what a uh, what a miraculous cure it is. Um, it did uh, appear, you know, it wasn't um, in the scientific literature until about the 1950s. But beginning then and moving forward, um, it, you know, it was discussed in the scientific literature and often celebrated for um, what a miraculous treatment it can offer to patients who are very sick. So can you explain for us, uh, first, what exactly a, a fecal transplant is um, and why that's something that might help, what that does? Sure. So again, I'm um, not a doctor, <laughs> but um, everybody has what we call a microbiome in their colon, in their gut. And that, you know, on a, on a good day is in a healthy balance, um, you know, that allows us to function, to, you know, eat, eliminate. <laughs> um, mine had been um, upset and, and, you know, maybe even scientists don't know exactly what the specific right balance is. So until we can actually isolate, you know, exactly what good bacteria we need, um, 
it sounds like a, you know, a crude, but yet it's a very effective method is to take feces from a healthy person who presumably has a good balance of these good and bad bacteria and actually transplant it into the colon of a sick person. And um, it, it's that simple. Um, you know, I, I think some people do it by uh, swallowing a pill that has the feces in it. Um, others use a tube, a nasal tube, um, or you can use an enema bottle and go in the other way, which is what I had done. Since your doctors were unwilling to work with you, it was up to you to find a, a donor on your own. Who did you turn to in that situation? I ultimately uh, asked my 11-year-old daughter. She was 11 at the time. Um, and that was fascinating to me, actually, because her response was perfectly opposite to that of my doctor's. She was curious. She had a lot of questions. She was amazing. <laughs> and um, she says, it's a little gross, but weird and interesting, and maybe it will work. And so in the end, she was fully on board. Okay, so you've made the decision, you're gonna, you're gonna administer a fecal transplant to yourself, you have your 11 year old daughter as the donor. What do you have to do then for preparation? Because you're obviously not doing it in a doctor's office and, and not doing it in a hospital. Uh, so, so what how did you prepare and, and how much did that cost? What did that take to do? I'm sure my insurance company paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for my ER visits, drugs, hospital visits, you know, <laughs> you know over that five-month period. Um, when um, I prepared for the transplant, uh, I did have to take one last round of the vancomycin. The idea was to kill everything, <laughs> to wipe the slate clean so that the donor material could take up residence fully. So I fasted for two days because the other idea was to just get everything out and not put anything else in. And then I had to wait for the donation, which of course, you know, that comes when it comes. <laughs> um, you, um, you know, you, again, there at the time, maybe there has been more progress since, um, the bacteria in feces is anaerobic, which means that it doesn't live when it's exposed to oxygen. So you really want to not have much time between the when the donation is made and when uh, the transplant takes place. So, um, you know, it was actually quite convenient to have somebody in my own home. And, um, and my husband in preparation had gone out to the store. I think the entire receipt was $17. Um, you know, which is <laughs> for a miracle solution is, is noteworthy, especially after the hundreds of thousands my insurance company had paid for ineffective solutions. He purchased um, a blender, a, uh, a strainer, a bottle of saline. Um, I think that was it. Oh, and an enema bottle. And um, when, oh, and then, you know, a cap for uh, catching the donation in the toilet so it did not go into the toilet water. And, um, and yeah, so when the donation came, he moved quickly <laughs> and, um, you know, put the sample in the blender with the saline, uh, you know, strained it, um, uh, so that it was just the liquid and, uh, put it in the enema bottle, handed it to me. 
So and, at that um, point, you um, you have your medical team, uh, your husband and your your daughter, um, and you're prepared. It sounds like you have uh, you had a protocol in place. Was that something that you just figured out on your own? No, definitely not. I um, we I was actually you know going to highly reputable sources, um, peer reviewed journal articles that gave. Hints. It wasn't that they actually gave a recipe card um, <laughs> because there was a lot of misinformation on the Internet. There wasn't a lot of information about fecal transplants, but some of it was suspect. And um, so I really relied on um, legitimate sources. You know, again, certain journals, you know, have, um, you know, vetting <laughs> that um you know, for their articles. And I trusted what I was reading in those peer-reviewed journals. And um, so, you know, the saline, the enema bottle, the, um, you know, don't let it be out in the air for too long, um, you know, lie on, I forget if it was my left or right side after, you know, <laughs> all of these were um, not directions that the articles gave me, but clues that I picked up from the articles. Okay, so now your daughter has, uh, as you phrased it, uh, made the donation. Um, what what happens then? What was that process like? And and what happened after you administered the the fecal transplant to yourself? You know, I do remember thinking that you know, apparently this was illegal, and <laughs> um, you know, and I remember thinking about women who have had to. Uh, you know, an abortion before abortion was legal, um, and maybe they felt abandoned by their doctors. And, um, you know, I remember thinking, well, at least my illegal procedure only involves an enema bottle and not a hanger. And, um, and um, so, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. My colon had been in constant spasm. So there was some concern, or I had some concern about would, um, my colon even be able to hold the, the donation for long enough for the, you know, new microbial profile to take root. Um, if, if it couldn't, then, you know, I really was out of ideas. Um, so, you know, I was just on the bathroom floor and my plan was to just stay there and not move and hope that I could hold it in for as long as I could. Um, and, you know, I, I write about this in my article and, um, you know, one day you're going to the bathroom 30 times a day. And then I actually fell asleep on the bathroom floor. Um, I, it had been a long time since I had slept through the night and I fell asleep. At some point I moved to my bed, but it was the first night in months that I slept through the night. And prior to the transplant, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm a writer, I love words, and I remember thinking that the word transplant sounded a little bit inflated because after all you think about heart transplants where somebody has their chest cut open. <laughs> but after the transplant, I decided that transplant was the right word, that, that really I felt completely different um, that something had been transformed. <laughs> and the next morning I, I woke up and I knew that I was better. And of course, you know, 
I still had to walk through the upcoming days and weeks and months and years. Um, but I was right. I, I never had a recurrence of C. diff. I was able to eat. I was able to resume my normal life and begin to heal. It took me time to regain the weight and strength, but as far as my gastrointestinal system, it was a miracle cure. My last question then is what, what prompted your decision to, to write about this? It's obviously, um, you know, as, as you said in the interview and as you write about, it's a, it's a topic that uh, a lot of society still treats as very taboo. Um, when you write personal stories like this and, and put yourself out there, oftentimes you can get some pretty harsh replies. Um, that's something I've experienced what finally made you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to write about this and, and put it out there for the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first, I'll let you know that I tried writing this article a few years ago, and I put it aside. <laughs> it wasn't time to write it yet. I needed to have more distance, understand what happened exactly, um, and process it myself a little bit. I thought a lot about um, how I wanted to write my article, and I realized that I wanted to present it as, um, you know, that, that we are in the process of understanding how, what the right treatment is, and that, um, that there may be lessons to learn from that, that, um, you know, maybe when, um, you know, somebody is saying, oh, this is a rogue treatment, but yet somehow it's working. <laughs> Um, you know, that maybe we should sit up and listen. Um, I think you mentioned that, you know, it was a personal topic and you're, you're right. Um, you know, I was ready and that, um, I, if I can be part of reducing shame, um, because I don't think there should be shame. Um, you know, I've, I've said a few times that I'm not a doctor and, and I am definitely not here to give medical advice, but I, I, I do have an agenda for patients, which is that, my hope is that my article can empower patients to take an active role in their own diagnosis, recovery, to um, not hand over everything to their doctor, and especially in cases where a doctor suggests that there are no options, that maybe there is still something that maybe you can do some research. This is a really remarkable piece uh, and, and this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm very glad that you wrote it and, and needless to say, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you are here for us to have this discussion. Um, and I look forward to reading your work for many, many years in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really my honor. That was Susan D'Agostino. Uh, who is a mathematician and science writer, uh, and she is currently getting her MA in the science writing program at Johns Hopkins and is also a Taylor Blakesley Fellow of the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing. Okay, Undark listeners, that's all for this month. We're produced by Lydia Chain, music is from the Undark team, and I'm your host, Kash Patel. See you next month.